Good morning, Darlene. It's been a total delight to, to meet you and to find about your existence and the existence of the Earth Law Center. This is Dr. Susan Eyrick talking from Earth Fire Institute Wildlife Sanctuary and Retreat Center. Our major goal is to help people see nature differently. And if they see nature differently and have different values, they'll treat it differently. So that's my fundamental goal. And part of my research about how do we do this, I found Darlene, who is executive director of the Earth Law Center. And her specialty is helping develop a concept of nature's rights around the world. Yes. So Darlene, I would love to hear you talk about Earth Law Center a bit. Thank you. Yeah, so um, you know, Earth Law Center is really about transforming the law to recognize and protect nature's inherent rights to exist, thrive, and evolve. So in, in normal people speak, that really means creating new laws, which actually address the balance or the, address the imbalance between um, corporate rights and nature's rights. So at the moment, we have a lot of non-human entities that bear rights. Most of those are corporations and trusts. So we have no problems with the idea of a piece of paper having legal rights. But when it gets, when it comes to nature, you know, if we continue to look at nature as free resources that are somehow magically unlimited, then we are going to continue to make the current environmental challenges worse. And all we're saying is that, you know, rivers should have river rights and mountains should have mountain rights and forests should have forest rights and wolves should have wolves rights. So that we are bringing in an entity which up until now has had no voice and no say in the decisions that impact them so that they actually at least have a part in the conversation and they have a voice in the discussions about things which will affect them. Do you conceive of them as um, living beings? As a yeah. Of a mountain? Yes, I, I think that uh, it's, we draw very much from indigenous worldviews and um, a lot of the great naturalist thinkers like Rachel Carson and uh, Aldo Leppard, where we don't see that humans are separate and above everything else. We see that humans are part of this network called life on the planet. So if we are interconnected, it means that we actually need to consider a lot more things than we have up until now. And it's, I think that it's kind of ironic in a way. I was just reading about an author, uh, the book is called The Water Will Come, which I highly recommend. Uh, and he's gone into one of the biggest slums in Nigeria. And he's found a whole communities of people living on the water. So they build their house on stilts, they travel around in boats, classrooms are elevated, and they can just keep on building on top of existing structures when the water rises. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? If you think about it, it means that we are starting to look at people who we have historically marginalized. And hopefully, instead of saying, oh, they're, you know, they're backwards and they're not developed, we say, oh, you know, maybe they have something there. Like maybe we can learn something from them. So, you know, when you look at native nations uh, around the world, you know, these are people who have lived sustainably with nature for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. And so instead of looking at them like, 
hmm, you know, they're not as developed, they don't have the latest smartphone, maybe it's time to look at them and say, you know, they might have had a good idea that we could actually learn from in order to actually create a future for humans on the planet. Uh, one of my friends who donated to my uh, ELC last year, when he gave me the check, he said, well, you know, I don't think the planet needs saving. I think the planet's going to be fine. I'm less optimistic about human survival on the planet, but here you go. Here's $100 because I think it's worth doing. So I thought, huh, you know, that's not a bad point because ultimately we need nature a lot more than nature needs us. Yeah. Wolves do not need humans to survive, but arguably humans need wolves to survive. So I think it's a lot about looking at re-looking at everything that we're doing and saying, well, instead of buying a new piece of clothing because I, it's fashionable, is to say, look, what is the cost of that? What is the real cost of that piece of clothing? Yeah. You know, what got destroyed such that this yeah. blouse could be made? Yeah. And is there something suspicious about this blouse being cheaper than what I could make if I sewed it at home? You know, there's something maybe worth considering about that, that maybe it's not worth destroying something that's a natural resource for everything on the planet, not just for humans. You know, every time a dam gets created, living things die. You know, I've, I've seen estimates from 10,000 to 100,000 species disappear every year right now, every year. It's astounding. I can't even imagine what 10,000 species looks like, much less 100,000 species. So it's really, it is to say that, you know, all of everything is alive. And so when you dam a river, you actually do kill that river. The good thing about nature is if you don't push it too far past tipping point, there have been really heartening case studies where once dams are removed, the, the river actually restores itself. The ecosystems come back. The salmon, you know, spawn again in that river. All of the living things that used to be in that river somehow do actually find a way to come back often. So I think that, you know, maybe we're at a very critical juncture in time where there is still the possibility of nature being able to restore itself and not causing any seismic changes, which are not particularly good for humans, actually. You know, a lot of things have more adaptability than humans do. Um, in the same book, it was talking about the fact that you know, there are a lot of indigenous nations that have lived on or near water throughout history. And in most cases, what happens is, okay, so there's floods and rising tides. They pick up and they move to higher ground. And they said, you know, that actually worked pretty well for thousands of years, except when we build very expensive condominiums, it becomes much harder to pick up and move to higher ground. And that's where we're kind of stuck now, right? So Right, we can't just roll up our house and carry our belongings and then go somewhere else. You know, what are we going to do with the car? Well, what's going to happen with all my furniture? Well, what's going to happen with, you know, everything that we've created? What we really, really, really need is another fundamental question. What do we actually need? How much do we need? That's a question I think we really need to face as a nation and as a leader of the world, because unfortunately the rest of the world thinks what we have is great. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we need. What's the difference between want and need? Yes. What's the difference in a profound sense of happiness? Yes. We evaluate what we need and instead of always wanting things, wanting things, wanting things, have what we need. 
Right. And a lot of the recent science suggests that, you know, once you reach a certain point of having your basic needs met, right. more money does not equal more happiness. Right. And if you look at the states, certainly, you know, the number of pills that we pop and the number of yeah. chronic illnesses that we have and the number of children that we have who have early onset diabetes, like these are not good signs of a healthy community or society, right? These are not indicators of happiness. So back to the idea of the law, which is really intrigued me the first time I heard about it. Um, I think it was at the time that there was a, a gentleman was trying to say, does a chimpanzee have the rights of a person when he was in a cage? That's the first that I heard about it. It's, yes. I understand that it's a bit of a growing movement now. Yes. And a bit more acceptable. The idea of nature having rights used to be absurd. What do you mean? Um, could you talk a little bit about how it's increasing? In, um, yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, if you look throughout history and you look at groups, you know, up until now of people who gain rights before it's a, uh, you know, when, when it first gets suggested, the initial pioneers typically go to jail. You know, the first women who suggested that women should vote, they went to jail because everybody thought that they were completely insane. You know, it was a completely unacceptable, um, almost horrifying idea. Um, but now we look at it, if there was any country that didn't give its women right to vote, we would be horrified by them. It's the same for children's rights, for slavery, for LGBT. So we see this, we have seen consistently that this is the pattern, right? That initially, you know, when Stephen Wise first wrote his book about chimpanzees having rights, judges used to laugh at him. Yeah. They even had some, uh, at one of his court cases, somebody barked at him. That was the response to his pitch. But now it's, you know, countries are starting to enact laws that you cannot torture animals. You cannot use them in scientific experiments. You cannot cage something like a chimpanzee who is arguably smarter than we are and a lot more competent that we are in creating, you know, solutions to difficult problems. So I think that when you look at rights, um, whether it's animal rights or nature's rights, we're starting to get to this point where we're no longer the lone pioneer 20, 30 years ago, who's the only person talking about this. It's starting to become part of the environmental conservation discussion. It's starting to make its way into lots of spaces, I think, because it starts to connect a lot of interests which look like they're not connected. Yeah. But you know, if you take a, a local community there may be an indigenous nation that's been fighting for this piece of nature for a while now. There may be anti-plastic folks. There may be people who are defending animal species in the region. So now there's a platform called Rights of Nature that actually includes all of these interests and in fact strengthens what they do. Yeah. Um, I spoke to the author of Wild Law, Cormac Cullinan. He's a, an environmental lawyer in South Africa who wrote Wild Law in 2002. So he said when he first published the book, he used to put alerts on Google and he would get two to three hits a year. And so he was like, well, at least there's two to three hits a year. And he said now he can get two to three hits a day or an hour. You know, there's just so much more discussion about it. Yeah. What I also find very interesting is when I speak to young adults, it's a much different conversation than when I'm speaking to people in my, my peer group. So in other words, if I'm speaking to somebody in their 40s or 50s who's very experienced and I talk about rights for rivers, I generally get 
confusion. Like, I don't, what? So how does a river have rights? Wait, so what does that mean? But a river can't go to court. You know, it's, it's really like a big mental shift for them. But I spoke at uh, Laurentian University a couple weeks ago to an architecture class, second year undergrad. No one asked me that. Everybody got the idea and then started to ask about the application of that idea. Like it was seamless. There was no, nobody said, wait, that doesn't make sense. So what do you mean by nature's rights? So that means, you know, we're gonna give birds human rights. Like, what does that mean? No one asked that. Like, so I think they got it, which I also think is part of that shift is that it's almost like the younger I go, the more, the more they accept that as, yeah, well, of course that, that, that makes sense. And I can totally understand why that would be a good idea. Yeah. That the older people are still the ones making the laws. <laughs> right. So we, you know, we have a little bit of a gap, but you know, there are people like us who are, you know, in the in the older age groups, and we, you know, we get it. Right. So I think yeah. that it's a matter of having more of those conversations. You know, how do we broaden this conversation to include people who think it's a little weird still? The idea of nature's rights in and of itself makes perfect sense simply because then it, you can defend it against all the corporate rapists. And that's not a, I don't use that word lightly. Yeah. Um, it gives them a way to defend it. The idea of, of a mountain being alive in and of itself, those things are a little harder for people to understand unless they come from an indigenous perspective. But it's not necessary for them to st understand it, to understand that the whole legal framework, if we right. the framework, we are then going to, it's, as you said earlier, it's so unbalanced, tons of corporate rights, tons of human rights, no rights for the very systems that sustain us. So it's actually insane if you think about it. And from my own work, the idea living with these wild animals, but any animal anyway, um, such a profound awareness of their inherent worth. You say inherent rights, mm -hmm. and I say inherent worth, mm -hmm. and inherent passion to live and um, worth meaning that they're, they're another living being and therefore by that simple fact they have rights. So I come from that angle of more emotional, experiential, mm -hmm. art-based um, and I think it's a critical that we come from all levels. Yes. Art-based motivates us. That's probably why you're doing the work you do actually. Um, but to help connect people on a Part basis to the fact that these are other living beings. Yes. Um, and then to have a legal framework to me is utterly brilliant. It's of course the right next step. So, you know, I'm, I'm hosting a panel called Our Sacred Earth in August and the essence of the panel is I'll be speaking about animals and who they actually are, not our images of them, but who they actually are, at least from my own pretty in-depth experience with wild animals. Mm -hmm. And then I'm having someone talk about plants and the increasing awareness of the consciousness of plants, not woo-woo, hard science. Mm -hmm. And then I'm gonna have someone talking about the earth itself. Mm -hmm. And deliciously, I'm gonna have someone talk about nature's rights. So we go from the heart of connecting and understanding what, this, what, what a wondrous universe we're living in to okay, what can we do, and the legal framework. So to me, this whole thing is so exciting. It's like something practical, yes. specific um, we can do. So I want to give it every um, airing I can 
Yes. Well, I think it's a wonderful approach because it's almost like we are working in the way that nature works, which is that nothing stands in isolation, right? Everything is connected to everything else. There is no such thing as talking about animals without talking about nature, without talking about humans, without talking about water, without talking about air. These are all things that are interconnected and influence each other. And, you know, what you were saying earlier was uh, made me think of a lot of people get converted to rights of nature because of what they've personally seen in where they live. Um, so I was watching a documentary and there was a whole bunch of people who have lived in West Virginia for generations. And they said, you know, we didn't really understand what mountaintop mining meant until it happened here. And so instead of these lush green valleys that their families have literally lived in for tens of generations, the whole mountaintop gets blown up. It just gets completely dynamited. And then when the, when the coal strips or whatever are gone, what's left are these barren sort of flat plains that one person said looked like a lunar landscape. There's nothing on them. And so meanwhile, you've released all these toxins into the air and into the water, which is poisoning everything, including humans. And it now can't be restored because there's nothing left to restore. And it will never be worse. I mean, at least in, in the short term, you know, these things have no way of coming back because there's nothing to come back. Everything's gone. And for what and for who? Right. And so I think that's when you, when the people who live there and connect with the land, they talk about it as if it's alive, right? These are, these are mountains which we have lived in for a generation. These are our mountains. These are places that we are, as you say, heart connected to. And now they've just been taken. And we can't figure out how that could have happened without anybody even asking us or telling us. And it's, and now what, you know, so now we figured out, oh, this is what's happening. Okay, so now we need to get the word out. Like, this is really terrible for everybody. And this is, you know, driving everything away, including humans. So I think it's also, you know, we're reaching maybe the limits of when we see sea turtles trying to bury their eggs in a beach filled with trash, and they literally can't bury their eggs because there's plastic bottles in the way, right? I think that that you know, there's that iconic picture of a seahorse and it's hanging on to a Q-tip, right? And you just think, oh my God, there's something so horrible and sad and tragic about that, that everybody gets, right? You don't have to be a marine biologist to understand that this is not a good thing. And if it's not a good thing for the seahorse, it's not a good thing for us. And we are the people who can do something about it. That seahorse can't really do anything about the Q-tip. It's really up to us. And so I think it's also, you know, what I find really inspiring about speaking to younger people about it is that here they are facing issues that I never had to face when I was in my teens and 20s mm. and they're not giving up you know they don't look at it like well there's no hope they have ideas and they want to get involved and they're volunteering and they're joining earth law clubs and they're working at their local animal you know sanctuaries so I feel like we should also not let them down mm. You know, and, and we can bring a lot of things and structures into uh, this sort of co this global coalition where we can actually shift the paradigm before it really becomes too late for humans. Tell me about Earth Law Clubs. Oh, so that's something that we started. Uh, the first one was at Vermont Law School where uh, Earth Law 
the Earth Law course has been taught. And so it's a bunch of students who want specifically uh, to focus on rights of nature as law students. So we thought, well, that's a good idea to get the word out. So we're, that's one of the things that we offer to schools. We're also offering internships. Um, we offer to guest lecture because we realize that a lot of times the people who we're pitching may or may not actually understand what rights of nature is. And it sounds a little bit suspiciously fringe, I think, to a lot of people. And so <clears throat> rather than have them commit to something that they don't know about, which is unlikely to happen, we thought we would maybe stage it. So it's kind of like I was saying to my colleagues, you know, if we ask them to teach the course upon meeting them, it's kind of like asking somebody to marry you on the first date. You kind of have to worry about somebody who says yes, right? So maybe what we do is do a guest lecture, then we have a mock trial workshop. They can intern in externships for us. And then we can talk about the course because by then they will have a different level of familiarity and we have built some kind of foundation for a relationship such that if we ask them something that they don't really know much about, they can come back and say, well, we don't really understand why this is different from our environmental protection curriculums or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, but at least it starts a dialogue. Instead of just being... In universities only so far? Well, so it's universities, grad schools, and law schools. Mm -hmm. And then I've just developed um, a mock trial for high school students, and we're piloting it in Brooklyn in a couple of weeks where it's uh, at-risk urban students who join these educational NGO programs and services to help them stay in school, graduate, and either get job training or get help going to higher education. So we're actually going to do the mock trial there. So I think that's great because that brings um, both environmental science and law to maybe a group of people who typically aren't told they should be lawyers. Um, but it, because it's hands-on, I think it gives that age group a chance to participate, which I think is might be more engaging for them than sitting and listening to a lecture about, you know, earth jurisprudence, which I think I mock trial is brilliant. I have this fantasy sometimes of having a film. So like was it Jimmy Stewart um, 40, 50 years ago, a film in um, the South where it's a mock trial and uh, about human rights. Yeah. What a powerful film it was. Yes. You could make a film about this with two different positions, somebody who, who blows up a mountaintop and someone who takes them to trial or someone who does some action against it and then is put in prison for doing action against it for protesting. I think it would be a really powerful kind of way to get this into more a larger consciousness to do a film like that with a really good actor, Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio or someone, you know? Exactly. So I love that idea of a mock trial. So how many of these clubs do you have? Uh, we only have the one at Vermont Law School so far. But you're starting. And you're also going to be writing a textbook? Or you're in the process yes. of? We're, we've just started that. Uh, we've finished the first draft of the outline for a legal textbook for uh, rights of nature. So when do you think that's going to come out? Hopefully <laughs> by next year. <laughs> so that's a fingers crossed kind of thing. Um, is better than later. Important. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, we, we depend on the generosity and passion of our volunteers. So we have three staff and 60 volunteers. Wow. You know, volunteers are amazing because they're typically students or they have full-time jobs. You know, they have all of their other commitments in life and they still want to spend time with us. So we're very grateful uh, to them. But, you know, it, when you were saying about the, the 
Jimmy Stewart film, you know, if you think about what it took to get civil rights, it wasn't any one thing by itself, right? So yes, there was a petition to change the constitution, but there were churches involved and there were counter sit-ins and there were student groups. You know, there are so many people doing what they could to move this forward. And I think all of them mattered. That it could not have happened without if one of those had pieces had been missing. And they were all connected to each other because of this vision for how things could be and for this, you know, this passion to make it better for future generations. And I think that that's what unites us now, you know, that it's really this idea that, yes, ocean levels rising may not affect me in my lifetime, but it's certainly going to affect, you know, affect generations to come. So, why would we leave all these issues for those generations to sort out if we can start doing something about it now? So I think that's what's really exciting. Yeah. Something that comes to mind to me is this is a wonderful idea from an abstract point of view. Nature has rights. And you are the guys who have to then take it and do the actual specific process of defining what that means and bringing it down into specific real reality, which is what law does, down to the detail. That's quite a challenge. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's not a quick fix, certainly. Um, because in some sense, you know, once something gets legal rights recognition, that's really the start of the process, right? So Ecuador wrote a new constitution that included nature's rights and was the first country to do so in the world. But it wasn't until a case was brought against a local, a local township for widening a road without doing an environmental assessment. And the contractors had come in and started dumping all the materials into the river. So it actually changed the course of the river. So a couple who, had, who lived nearby brought suit against the township and they ruled in favor of the river, wow. right? So, so that's literally the first precedent then to say, okay, so when a river has rights, then what happens when these collide with other rights? then the judge has to start looking at it and saying, okay, so now we have this constitution, which you know, says the river has rights. So it doesn't mean nobody else has rights, but it means the river's rights have to be included when there are decisions. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that the road won't be widened, but it means that they A, have to assess what the impact on the river is gonna be, and B, they can't just dump stuff into the river willy-nilly, which is what's possible now if the river doesn't have rights. How is that different from what your students said about how does nature's rights differ from environmental protection? So for environmental protection, in that same case, what you would have had to demonstrate is quantifiable injury to people who lived near the river huh? or some species is endangered. So in both those cases, that tends to be the end of a long process, right? So by the time somebody can demonstrate that they've been ill, they've had to spend money getting better, you know, it's, it's really a, a bit late for that person, but it's also far along in that process. The same with the species, right? By the time you have to um, demonstrate that this endangered species is at risk, you know, we're very near the end of that species. Mm -hmm. So environmental protection as it stands today is that no one has standing in the courts unless you can demonstrate largely injury to humans and then to a secondary extent, some kind of um, definite threat to an endangered or near threatened species. Mm. Um, and in a lot of cases, that's where you're going to end up 
but by the time you prove it, it's almost too late, mm. right? So it's not to say that the environmental um, regulations aren't good or necessary, but it's to say that maybe it's time for continued evolution of that. So yes, those were great. And those were in response to much worse environmental situations in some cases that were cleaned up, right? Superfund came out of that. You know, the EPA came out of the, the early environmental activists. But despite all that, nature seems to continue to be suffering and species are continuing to disappear and the ocean is continuing to be filled with garbage. So how about we look at, well, how do we continue to evolve the law so that we step up the protections to reflect the threats that all of our, you know, natural co-evolving species and the natural environment is facing because it's maybe like uh, there are the laws are not on par with the threats that they're facing and so that's why we need to continue to build on that legal tradition and continue to evolve the law so in this particular case that's what the environmental rules would do and approaching with the point of view that nature has rights means you can get ahead of it much sooner, right? So at the moment it happens, you can actually sue on behalf of the river. But that's extremely practical. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the idea of whether the river's living or not. You don't even have to go into all that, quote, real, unquote, stuff that some people feel that way. It's just simply practical. Yes. My own yeah. personal feeling is that um, um, ethics are practical and, and spirituality is practical. Yes, because it leads to these kinds of results. But if you don't want to go into the spiritual idea or the um, indigenous idea of the river being living, this idea is still incredibly practical. Right, right. It, it gives people, it, it, particularly local communities, it gives local communities the access to action. Mm, that's right. Right, because there are so many communities now who are affected by these things, but they can't prove that they've been injured. Right. So if they can't prove they've been injured, then no court will give them a hearing because they have no standing in the courts. So there's a lot of sort of double binds for people who are directly affected. Whereas if you have rights of nature, then you start to be able to say to these people, look, you know what's going on. You know how you've been affected. You can sue now on behalf of this river or this mountain or you know, these species. Well, this kind of thing just gives me a lot of hope. I think hope is a useful thing anyway, and practical too, because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't yes. know what incredible things we might come up with, but this idea is um, it's incredibly hopeful and brilliant, and uh, I want to support it in any way I can. So if people want to learn more about it, or about you, or about how they can join, um, where would they go? Uh, so earthlawcenter.org is our website. It's got a lot of information on it, both things that we've written and produced. And we also have a suggested reading section where we're just collecting a lot of what we think are really great, um, either compilations of rights of nature, writers, or books or um, videos that uh, people can choose from. So, and we're always open to suggestions. So if somebody wants something, uh, you know, we've, we've written an ocean framework um, to, include rights of nature into marine protected area governance and management plans. 
And one of the uh, inputs that we got from a global expert is that they need it in Spanish because a lot of the communities and partners they work with really need it in Spanish. So now we're translating it into Spanish. So, you know, I think this is a, I think if the way to think about it is that both you and I are working in an area which is about to get to tipping point. Yeah. You know, we, are, we are no longer sort of the only voice standing in the middle of nowhere talking to ourselves. Yeah. But we are, you know, right? But now when we talk to people, people go, oh, yeah, that seems like a really good idea. Yeah. So I think that the way to continue this and to add momentum is literally every single person who comes across the idea and gets it adds to the momentum. Just yeah. by getting it, they add to the momentum. Yeah. If they're willing to actually do something about it, learn more, volunteer, give $5, start something in their own area, find somebody who's working on something already in their own area. That just then adds so much more power and momentum to what everyone else is already doing. Yeah. You know, that I think it's really an opportunity to participate. You know, it's like what Mr. Fuller said, right? There's no crew. I mean, there's no passengers on Spaceship right. Earth because we're all crew. Right. And I just thought, God, I love that guy. I yeah, think we that's that so inspiring for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're not passengers, people. We are literally crew. So if we don't do anything, what happens to a plane when the crew doesn't do anything? Yes. You know, y'all can figure it out. It's not that complicated. Yes. <laughs> Lovely talking to you. I look forward to doing it again. Likewise, Susan, thank you so much for this brilliant idea. And it was just really great to be able to have a dialogue with you and have a chance to just, you know, share what we've been doing. Yeah. So, speak to you soon. All right. Speak to you soon. Take